0: Jesus, strong and kind. We often think of him as being strong, right? And loving and caring, but do we often think of him as kind? Sometimes we make the mistake in thinking kind is like a trait that is for wimps or people that are not tough, and you know, but there's no stronger, more tough person than our Savior Jesus Christ, but he is also kind. And it's a good example for us to follow as well. We can be kind to others and should be kind to others as well. All right, well, we're going to continue this morning our study in the book of Ephesians. So go ahead and open your copy of the Bible to the book of Ephesians. Meet me there in chapter 2, if you would, this morning. we're going to be considering something that is very popular in different areas of life uh, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Um, if someone were to say to you the word, or use the word makeover, what comes to mind? What kind of things do you make over? Now, when my grandparents talked about making over, they talked about you know, uh, you know, sp- you know, paying special attention to it. Oh, they make over that child so much, you know, um, but that's not what that word means anymore. What does the word "makeover" mean today? Kitchens and bathrooms. Kitchens and bathrooms that's one of the things that come to ma- to mind. Faces, okay, maybe hair or something like that. They they do makeovers of those. You know, I often wonder in both the kitchens and the bathrooms and in the faces. Um, you know, setting makes a big difference, and the, and the before picture that you have um, of, a, of a kitchen or even of a person's face, the lighting is bad, and they're not smiling, and, and, and they, then they have this makeover, and they got all the lighting in all the right places, and the person's smiling and, and dressed up really fancy and looks nice. I wonder how much difference the makeover really made. But anyway, what else comes to mind when you think of Makeovers. Change, okay, anybody think of cars? When they talk about a makeover, it used to be a show that we watched in South Africa. It was an American show. I can't even remember what it was, um, but it was about taking a car that had been come out that had come out of a junkyard and they restored it. That's another word we you know we call it makeovers, but really we're restoring things. Okay, um, but the idea of a makeover. That's I mean you can turn the TV on 24 hours a day and watch something about home makeovers, right? Flipping this and flipping that and doing this and di- and it's just I mean it's all over. I, I mean if it weren't for makeovers, the home the HG channel wouldn't have anything to, to to broadcast, right? Okay, so this idea of making things over, making them new. The definition of a makeover is this: the process of changing the way something looks or works in order to make it better or more attractive. One of the things that we watched when we first came back from South Africa was uh, extreme home makeover, okay? And, and usually it was somebody who was um, had some misfortune in life and couldn't afford to fix up their home. Something bad had happened to them. And so Ty and his crew would come in, and they would find out exactly what the family wanted in the kitchen and the bedrooms and what their needs were and all that kind of stuff. And they would um, basically gut the whole house Um uh, and, and start from scratch and build this beautiful home. And then they, the per, the families that they that they were doing the makeover for had to be out of the house, obviously. And then they would come back and they would hide behind or they wouldn't hide. But the bus that Ty and his crew traveled in would be in front of the home that they were making that they were doing the makeover on. And then they would get them all excited and they would say, "Bus driver, move that bus!" And the bus would move and it would reveal this beautiful home where once stood oftentimes a home that was broken down and not in very good shape at all. And it met the, met the needs and it fulfilled the dreams of the family that they were serving during this home make, this makeover. So most of us would agree, and we've probably all seen before and after pictures, right? Um, we took some before and after pictures of the church uh, uh, basement when, when, when we decided that uh, Rachel was going to move in there. She asked if she could move in there, and the deacons and everybody said, yeah, that's fine. Um, we decided, okay, we've got to do some stuff here to make it ready. So when we were doing that, we pulled the kitchen counter away and found this, all this black mold behind the kitchen counter, behind the cabinet. It was bad. I mean, it was really bad um and so it was like well what do we do well Pastor Tim becomes Ty Pennington in some degrees, starts di- starts demoing everything that's back there, pulling all the drywall off, um, pulling out all the insulation, uh, cleaning it all off with a mold armor and, and just getting all of it cleaned up and then we started putting it back together and of course I was calling Nick and I was calling other people, but what do I do? How do I do this? How do I take care of this? Because I'm really not Ty Pennington at all. Um, I just like, you know, like to maybe think that I can make it better than it was before. So we pulled all the insulation out and and of course at some point, we're going to fix the real problem where the water gets into the basement, but that's uh, that's hopefully going to happen sometime in the near future. But we we got it all sorted out. We put the insulation back in. We painted it with mold prevention paint. We put mold prevention drywall on it. We even put mold prevention stuff in the paint, and we painted it all, and it's all back together, and it looks so much better than it did before. I mean, I, I basically rebuilt the cabinets. I cut the face off. Barry helped me do it. Cut the face off the cabinets. And then all we had was the face of the cabinets. So we had to put the cabinets back together. And we, Nick said, don't put it down on the floor. Put it on, on pressure treated two by four. So we did that. Um, and we got it all back together. And it looks really good. And then Nick came over and he did tiles and he did uh, VCT in the floor. And it really, the, the basement looks so much better than it ever did. It was a makeover down there. It was changed from what it was to what it is now. And it looks good. We would agree that most of the time, the before pictures look far worse than the after pictures do. And that's the goal, right? Well, we're going to talk about that in a spiritual setting this morning. At our Family Fun Fall Festival, we had some folks that were involved in an outreach ministry using the wordless book plan to decorate walking sticks that we gave out. And we had the opportunity to share the gospel with people who were walking through. The the first bead in the wordless book is... And we've moved away from using the actual color of the bead, and we say it's dark. And that's probably actually even a a better scriptural uh, principle than saying that it was black. It is dark. Okay? Um, and there is a Bible verse that makes us think of what we were like before we knew Jesus as our Savior. That Bible verse is found in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. And it gives us a before and an after. It says, Though your sins be as scarlet. Though your sins be as scarlet. See the dark color back there? And scarlet is a hard color to cover up. That's what our sins are like. They're scarlet, they're dark, and the darkness separates us from our God. That's before. After, though, the second part of that verse is so encouraging. It's such a blessing to those of us who know Jesus as our Savior. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. White as snow, clean, crisp. Uh, you know, it's, the scarlet is not just covered up; it's washed away. It's been given a new. It's been given a new color, and it's not anything that we could develop on our own. It's not a color that we could manufacture in and of ourselves. It's a color that comes as the result of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. His blood was shed and washed us white as snow though my sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow the reminder is that our sins through the work of jesus christ the spotless lamb of god on the cross of calvary his work has allowed us to be washed white and clean pretty impressive before and after picture and there are so many of these kinds of makeovers that take place since Christ died on the cross of Calvary, countless people have had their lives made over by Jesus Christ. And as, as nice as a home makeover might be, or as nice as a face makeover might be, or a car makeover might be, There is nothing quite like the makeover of Jesus Christ in the life of a person who is hell-bound and without any hope of having a change in their life, who is brought into a new life because of the work of Jesus Christ. Those details are found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So far in our study in Ephesians, we have been reminded of the great wealth that is ours in Christ Jesus. As born-again believers, as the children of God, we have a wealth that is far greater than anything we could attain to here on this earth in this life. We have seen that our wealth is not a materialistic wealth. Our wealth is not uh, gathered up and, and content by the fact that we have several thousand dollars or a million dollars in our bank account. It's not seen in the fact that we live in a... 15-story mansion or we drive a rolls-royce or a whatever kind of expensive car you want to talk about driving our wealth is seen in the fact that we are heirs with jesus christ we are joint heirs with our savior jesus christ who someday we're going to see face to face The veil is gone, and we're going to see him, and John says we will be like him when we see him as he is. Man, that is, my friends, the ultimate makeover, an extreme makeover beyond anyone else's imagination. Having communicated to us in chapter 1 the wealth that is ours in Christ, in chapter 2, Paul shifts gears, and he changes his focus a little bit. He wants us to see from where we have been lifted, from where we have come. And and when we look back where we were and we see where we are now, oh man, how far have we come? We've come a long way through Jesus Christ. Let's start shifting our focus now to chapter two. We see in chapter two, two results of repentance. And if you, and we will read in just a few minutes, chapter two, verses one through 10, you'll say, pastor, I don't see that word repentance in there, but that's okay. that's, it's, it, in fact, this passage of scripture just screams out the results of repentance, even though the word is not there. Paul does not want us to simply benefit, focus on the benefits of our salvation, uh, the after photo, if you will, of our salvation. He wants us to focus on how it happened. What was it that made us where we are today? Where were we start when we started out and how did we get to where we are now? Paul, em, Paul's emphasis in chapter 2 is that the changed lives that we have because of our salvation is the fruit of repentance and not the results of good works that man tries to do in order to make himself feel good. I was, I was at uh, the bus garage this week and um, already getting opportunities to talk about the Lord. And I don't think that they will be uh, few and far between there because a lot of people are interested in the spiritual things there. Um, and so I was walking in and one of the ladies who's, who's training me in certain things, um, she was talking about how her mother-in-law had asked her daughter to go to church and didn't ask mom and dad if she could take her to church. So she wasn't very happy about that. And she says, by the way, I don't go to that kind of church anyway. That's not what I was raised in. And then somebody else says, well, ask him. He knows what the differences are. (laughs) How do you not take advantage of that, right? So I said, I said, well, the difference between that kind of church and our kind of church is is the very philosophical foundation of how to get to heaven. This church tells you that you get there by doing these certain things. It's a works-based religion. Now, they won't tell you that that's what it is, but that is absolutely what it is. When they say, these seven things you got to do, and you really can't do all seven of them anyway, but if you can do all seven of them, you can get to heaven. I said, we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. We believe that the Bible teaches we are saved by grace. And it was the result of Jesus dying on the cross, paying for our penalty, for our sins, that allows us the privilege of going to heaven. We are a grace-based belief system because we can't do enough good works to get to heaven. You just can't. And if that's what you're relying on, the scale is never going to even out. It's always going to be your good works down here and your sin way up here. Because your sin is far greater than any of the works that you will ever do that get you to heaven. We don't depend on doing good works to get to heaven. We depend on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And in order to make that work happen or start to be effective in our lives, there must be this thing we call repentance. We must repent from our former life, our old way, our old man, our old nature, and we must turn to God. You see, every person who has ever walked on this earth was in one state. They were walking away from the things of God. Didn't want anything to do with them. And they might say, well, I'm not that bad a person. It doesn't matter whether you're a good person or a bad person. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're born in sin and you're moving away from him. The closest you will ever be to Jesus is the day you were born and then it only gets further and further away. But I'm not that bad a person. It doesn't matter. Your heart. It's dirty, it's not clean, it's separated from God. And you continue to do your own thing and move away from God. There must be this act of repentance. And you know what repentance means? It's a military term that is an about face. You're, not now, you're no longer walking after the things of the world, but you're now seeking after the things of God, something that takes a supernatural work in your life, in your heart, in your mind to happen because you aren't going to make it happen on your own. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth good. We have all gone astray. We have led everyone to, their, to his own way. Wow. That's how bad it is. And God says there must be this act of repentance. Unger's Bible Dictionary has this as part of its entry for repentance. It says, Repentance in the theological and ethical sense is a fundamental and thorough change in the hearts of men from sin toward God. From sin toward God. It's a fundamental change. And you know what? We can't can't instrument that fundamental change. We can't make that happen. Only the Holy Spirit can make that happen. The entry goes on to say, although faith alone is the condition for salvation, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 and Acts 16, 31, repentance is bound up with faith and inseparable from it, since without some measure of faith, No one can truly repent, and repentance never attains to its deepest character till the sinner realizes through saving faith how great is the grace of God against who he has sinned. On the other hand, there can be no saving faith without true repentance. Do we understand it all? Nope. Do we even have the faith to comprehend it? Nope. And that's why when we get down to verse eight of Ephesians chapter two, we will read there. And and by grace you've been saved through faith, by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You don't even have the faith in yourself to be saved. That faith comes from God as a gift to his children. As we start out this morning, I want you to see this about faith in Ephesians chapter two. Um, we're gonna, I'm gonna show you verses one and verse two, and then verse ten, and then we're gonna read all ten verses together. But look at verses one and two first. It says there, and you, He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's what you were like. That's what I was like. That's what all of us are like when we are born into this world. Does any of that sound good? Not really. We walked in, the, in, in disobedience, because we did the works of the sons of disobedience. That's bad. Anybody here like it when your child disobeys? No. Or your grandchildren, for that matter. You don't like it when that happens, right? So what do you do? You instill corrective measures. Hopefully you're training them so that... The corrective measures are, are few and far between and they, they don't have to need to be corrected. Ooh, that was bad. They don't need to be corrected. But anyway, um, we, we want to help them understand how to live right so correction is not necessary. But right now, as we come into this world, we are the sons of disobedience. We are children who walk our own ways and do our own things. And and I can tell you, it doesn't take long for that innocent little baby to demonstrate he's doing his own thing or she's doing her own thing. Wants it it exactly their way, and if they don't get it their way, they throw their toys out of the cot. That's what they do. They, They just let you know, hey, this is not what I want. I want it better. I want it different. Change it now. Now they don't they can't even talk, but that's what they're telling you. See how you once walked according to uh, to verse 10 or verses 1 and 2. Now we jump down to verse 10 and there's this word for we could actually put in there therefore, but we won't. We'll just say for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a change. In verses 1 and 2, you aren't doing any good works. You have no desire to do good works. You have a desire to look out for you and and, and anything that's going to benefit you. But after we see verses 3 through 9, this work that God does in our hearts, we become the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus so we can do the good works that God Himself prepared in eternity past that we would do so others will also come to know Jesus as their Savior. That's the whole purpose. God saves us and leaves us here so others can know about the great work that He has done in and through us. Did you see repentance there? Paul says, we all used to walk like the world, according to the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, and that, of course, is Satan. That's the way we all used to work, but now, as children of God, who have been saved by grace through faith, we now walk in the good works that God prepared for us to do in eternity past. So let's take a look, as we get started this morning, at the details of how that makeover happens. Now you got to do, you know, when you do a makeover in your house or whatever, you do a bunch of demo before you even start thinking about how you're going to make the house look. In fact, I think Vicky and, and Keith are getting ready to do some some work in their house, um, and I and, and I know that that's it's hard work. Okay, and you got a limited amount of time, and you got so much that you can put into it. But listen to this: God is the maker. God is the maker overer. Okay? God is the one who does the makeover. He's got no budget. And that's seen in the fact that He didn't even spare His only Son. And He's an all powerful God. So if He's going to do a makeover, man, the end result is going to be amazing. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for Scripture, we thank you for your word. And as we look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, we ask your blessing upon our study. Uh, What a a topic, a makeover of, of us from sinners being separated from you on our way to hell to being saints who are on our way to heaven to spend eternity with you who are currently striving to do the good works that you've called us to do. Wow, you are an amazing God. And we're excited and looking forward to our time together in your word. We ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start uh, the process of looking at this makeover by reading. Well, what what should you do? When you you buy something, you're going to change it all over. What should you do? You should read the instructions, right? I know guys don't like to read instructions. They just kind of take them out of the box and throw them to the side. And then when they get into trouble, they look at the instructions and say, where did I go wrong? Well, let's start. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's stand together as we read from the Word of God this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, look at the screen and read along with me. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thank you for reading with me. You may be seated. What an amazing text of Scripture we had the privilege of looking at this morning. We're going to start out by verses 1 through 3. And what we see in verses 1 through 3 is our place before salvation. Where we were before we came to know Jesus as our Savior. And that is the same place every other person who has ever entered into this world through the normal means and save one, Jesus Christ... We all have the same place. We all have the star- same starting point. We are separated from God. We, in fact, the moment we are born, we are dead. Hey, Pastor, that doesn't make any sense. Sure it does. We may, we may have uh, just begun our earthly journey, but we begin it in death. Separated from God. Spiritually speaking, we are, as we see in verse 1, without life. If it were only that the smack on the bottom of the butt that makes the baby cry would get rid of our sin, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? When we took our first human breath, that it was like divine. But it's not. We are born in sin. We are conceived in sin. David said to himself, in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, that doesn't mean the manner in which they were conceived or the circumstances surrounding the conception. That's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about the very fact that my mom and my dad were both sinners. They came together and produced another sinner. That's the way sin is passed on. It's passed on through procreation. When we are born, we are without life. Paul says we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, that word dead, this word, it actually means a corpse. No life, no breath, dead as dead can be. We we used to use the phrase dead as a doornail. I have no idea where that came from, but anyway, dead. One movie star said, dead men tell no tales. Dead men don't do anything, right? Dead men are dead. Now, a fair question would be, what caused this death? So, when somebody dies and the circumstances of that death are not fully understand, understood at the time of the death, what do they do? They do an autopsy. So, Paul gives us the autopsy of every person who is ever born. The autopsy, autopsy report says they are dead in trespasses and sins. The word trespasses, it means a deliberate act of doing wrong. In other words, you know the consequences, and you go ahead and do the wrong thing anyway. When I was young, I used to go hunting with my cousin. We used to go fishing together as well. We did all kinds of outdoor things. And for some reason, we found ourselves face-to-face often with these orange signs, about this big, Square. Two big words at the top. No trespassing. And then underneath the fine print it says you can't hunt, you can't fish, you can't do this, you can't. Don't cross this line. And you might look down the fence line a little bit hoping to see that there's a spot where it doesn't say that. All over the place. No trespassing. No trespassing. No trespassing. No trespassing. I remember going to Mrs. Bailey, who owned the property um, on Bailey Road, and asking her if we could hunt. My cousin and I could hunt back there. Uh, oh, sure, you boys can go back there. That's not a problem. So when we cross the line that says no trespassing, we're kind of like, <laughs> we get to cross this line. Nobody else can, but we can. No trespassing. You and I, when we sin deliberately knowing that we're sinning and choosing to do it anyway, we call those sins of commission. We're committing them, knowing that they're wrong, knowing what the consequences are, and yet we still go ahead and do them. We were dead in trespasses, choosing to sin. There is not a person who has entered this world who who has not chosen of their own free will to sin. Everyone has. We also see in the autopsy report that we are dead in our sins. This is a broader term. It's anything opposed to God's character. It could be the result of ignorance. You you do something that you didn't know was wrong, and it was still wrong, and you know what? When you try to explain it, they say, it doesn't matter, you're still wrong, you're still going to have to pay the consequences. It could also be things that you willfully do, That you know are wrong, but don't necessarily have a consequence spelled out for you. These things we might characterize as our life before we were saved. You know, people that don't know Jesus as their Savior, they're going through life. They're doing the best they can. They're trying to live a good, honest life. They do most of the time what is expected of them. They're still sinners. Just like we were before we came to know Jesus as our Savior. And you know what? We're still sinners, even after we come to know Jesus as our Savior. But we have a means by which to deal with those sins. We find it in 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. So we were without life. That's our place before salvation. We also see part of our place is that we are walking in accordance with the world in verse 2. We see here that we're not only dead in our trespasses and sins, but we walked, we did life just like the world does life. Then doesn't bother us. We, we that's the way we lived. As we as we get later on into the book of Romans, Paul's going to make that even clearer, more clear in Ro, in Ephesians chapter four and Romans chapter one. We've studied that a couple of times here, um, and that that chapter it sounds like it could have been written in twenty twenty three. It's a perfect uh, explanation of where we are in our world today not only do we do the things that we know are wrong but we encourage others to do them as well our you know the world has, has no regard for the things of God they don't want to do what God wants them to do there's no there's nothing within them that encourages them to do what is right we're walking with a court in accordance to the world It is this walk that is in line with the desires and the plans that Satan has for mankind. And when we think about that kind of a walk, we understand that the world does what the world does. And the only way the world stops doing what the world does is when the world stops being of the world and they start to become of Christ when they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. I've shared with you before that people have said to me, Pastor, you're not going to let that person, not this church, but you're not going to let that person come to our church. They're doing this and they're doing that. I said, why not? Does that person know Jesus as their Savior? No. Well, then how do you expect them not to do the things that the world does? Yes, I want them to come to our church. Why? So they hear the truth. So they understand what they need to do to stop doing what they are doing. You see, a person can't change themselves. Why? Because they're walking away from God. The only way they can be changed is through the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. and. Blood of Jesus Christ that pays the wages of sin, that satisfies the wrath of God. So, absolutely, I want people who don't know Jesus as their Savior to come to our church so they can hear the truth. So, what they hear here from this pulpit and from this book is exactly what they hear from you when you tell them that in work or wherever you might run across them your neighbors, uh, your family members, whatever. We're just kind of confirming what you're already telling them or should be telling them. You need Jesus. You need a Savior. Everyone does. You can't get around it. This walk is in accordance with the walk of the world, and it shows there's no fear of God or any desire to do what God would have someone to do. You know why? Because they're doing what they want to do. And in essence, they're doing what Satan wants them to do. Walking in accordance with this world. We also see that they're wandering around. Uh, wandering in, the, in accordance with the prince and the power of the air. Also in verse 2, who are they wandering around with? Who are they associating with? Well, the prince and the power of the air is Satan. Paul takes his description of how we were before salvation to an even more despicable level. Let's get a better understanding of what it means to walk according to the prince and the power of the air. The prince in the power of the air is Satan. It's none other than Satan himself. The same one who embodied a serpent, went into the Garden of Eden, and got Adam and Eve to doubt God. Hath God said, yes, God said, now get out of here. That should have been the response. But when we start to doubt God, we start to think about and and do things that we shouldn't do. The prince in the power of the air is Satan prior to salvation, we were trapped in Satan's wicked snare. We walked with him, we did his bidding, because we had no other desire. That's all we knew. And that's why I say sinners do what sinners do, and until they're born again, they're going to continue doing what sinners do. And even sometimes after, we still do what sinners do. Because, we, because we're sinners. Sinners. And until we see Jesus face to face, that's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a battle. We're going to continue to battle that. Many are still under Satan's power and under his grasp. And Paul says here that we used to behave like those who are now the sons of disobedience. All of us that are sitting in this room, we used to behave like that. We used to be normal fare of life for us. That's the way we did life. But there's this thing called repentance. Those who have repented, our desire should be to walk differently now. Our our desire should be to be like Jesus, to become more and more like him with each passing day. Unlike those who are still in bondage to Satan, they don't have a desire to change. You and I should have a desire to get as far away from that kind of lifestyle as we can. And to live for Jesus. When we were dead, we were separated from God. Our walk was directed by the wicked one and he led us to walk in a, character, in a lifestyle that's characterized by sinful behavior. We wandered in accordance with the prince and the power of the air and we practiced wicked conduct according to verse three. Wicked conduct. You say, well, I wasn't that bad. Yeah. Yeah, you were. And if you weren't worse than you were it was by the grace of God. We lived according to the lust of the flesh. Our desires were to gratify the flesh and to please self. And not only were our desires to gratify the flesh, but our actions showed that we gave into the flesh. In the text here, verse 3, it says, we fulfilled the desires of the flesh. These desires would be those unrighteous desires that come because we walked as Satan wanted us to walk. Those desires... When you you see somebody who's unsaved doing certain things and they seem to be enjoying it, they seem to be having fun doing it, and you scratch your head and you say, well, I don't understand why they do that. That's all they know. They don't know anything else. They, they, They do not have a conscience as we have that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are still under bondage to Satan. They are doing his bidding. Now, they might not be the worst people that ever lived, but they are still doing exactly what Satan wants them to do at that point in time. They are fulfilling the desires of the flesh. It also says that they are fulfilling the the desires of the mind. Now, can I remind you that the flesh that they are fulfilling and the mind that they are fulfilling is still unregenerate. It's still under bondage to Satan. That's why they're doing what they're doing you may say, well, that means they're not really bad people. Yes, they are. They're bad people, and until they trust Jesus as their Savior, that label sticks with them. Stuck with us until we trusted Jesus as our Savior. We see here that these unregenerate things that they do, they, they're all kinds of hostile, self-righteous, immoral plans, which are wicked deeds manifested in wicked things. Now stop and think about what we've just talked about in verses 1 through 3. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were people that walked in the accordance with this world system that's governed by the prince and the power of the air. And you might say, I would never live like that. Well, there are plenty of people all around us that think that they don't live like that. But you know what? That's exactly how they're living. Why? Because their minds and their eyes and their hearts are blinded. By the wicked one. Try to talk to them about God. And unless the Holy Spirit's doing something in their life, they're going to say, I don't want to hear about that. I don't need God. I'm fine on my own. Don't bring that up. I don't need to hear it. I'm fine just without Him. Friends, if it weren't for the grace of God in our lives, and anyone who knows Jesus as their Savior, if it weren't for the grace of God in our lives, we would be living just like them dead in trespasses and sins, and walking according to Satan's will and desires for us. Now, Paul reminds us, hey, that's not where you are anymore. Something's different, something's changed. Paul changes gears here a little bit, and he reminds us of what happened to make such a difference in our lives, so that we're not walking that way anymore. We see in verses four through nine the pathway of our salvation. Remember, the theme of this passage is repentance and how we were walking in one direction and God, God called our about face. You know, if you've ever been in the military and you've been marching and, and your, your commander says, about face! What's usually the next words that come out of his mouth? Forward march! Don't stay where you were, close to what you were getting away from. Get away from it! God called our about face. We're walking away from him. The Holy Spirit starts convicting us of sin. Somebody shares the gospel message with us. We repent. We trust Jesus as our Savior. And that about face is called, and we turn around, and we start walking towards the things of God. Our desire should be to fulfill what God wants us to do in his life. Those good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. But let's see this pathway of salvation. First of all, in verse 4, we see the reason for our salvation. And it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with who I am or who you are or how good we are or how good we aren't. Okay, The reason for our salvation in verse 4 is because God is rich in mercy. Or we could say that God is full of compassion for his children. We've talked about mercy many times in the past. It's this idea of not getting what we deserve. That's mercy. We know what we deserve, right? We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. But in His mercy, God withholds that from us. We could read this verse like this. God has a great desire to hold back the punishment we so rightly deserve. God is rich in mercy, has a desire to hold back the punishment that we so rightly deserve. We also see that God has a great amount of love that he has bestowed upon us. God bestowed an amazing measure of love. And how do we know that? Romans 5, you know what it says, one of my favorite verses. But... God demonstrated or commended or showed his love toward us and that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. There wasn't anything good in us. There was no redeeming value in us. There wasn't something that, uh, maybe God said, maybe I can straighten him up and get him to walk the right way for a little bit. no. There was nothing good in us. We were still sinners. The previous couple of verses talk about uh, for scarcely peradventure. Maybe there's a chance for a righteous man someone would dare to die, or maybe for a good man. We weren't righteous. We weren't good. Even according to the world standards, we were still sinners in Christ died in our place, died for us. Wow. Let's always remember that God's mercy and love did not bypass his righteousness or his justice, though. He did not excuse away our sin. He didn't say, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. He didn't just sweep it under the carpet. He dealt with it. He paid the penalty for our sins. By sending his son to the cross to take my sins and your sins, the sins of mankind, on to his body. John chapter 3 verse 16, you know. Anybody want to quote it? How about we say it together? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world. And because he loved the world, he gave his son so that we might not have to, or so that we would not have to because we could not endure his wrath. It's safe to say that God's mercy is given to us because of the love he has for us, for his creation. But he remains just and righteous all the time. The reason for his salvation is because he is rich in mercy and love. We also see the results of his salvation, of our salvation in verses 5 through 7. We were dead, but what does it say? We are now alive. I mean, if you've ever been at the bedside of somebody whose heart has stopped beating or at a rescue scene where somebody's heart has stopped beating and they start, you know, doing compressions, they start doing CPR and then they rip the shirt off and they put these pads on them and they say clear and everybody backs away and then they shock them. And the goal is to do what? What? Bring them back to life. Meanwhile, their loved ones are all around and they're crying and they're weeping and they're saying, please God, please God. And they're asking, they're begging for something to happen to change them. And and sometimes they are revived and there's this relief. Thank you, thank you. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But now we are are alive the the CPR Christ's work in us has brought us back to life revived us we're not dead anymore we used to walk according to Satan's ways and living his desires now we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus We used to do the things that Satan wanted us to do. And our our destination was hell. Separation from God. But, destination has changed. We are now on our way to glory. In fact, we are seated in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Paul says, we were the children of wrath. That's the way we lived life. We did things that were full of spite and mean spirit and wrath and vengeance and always looking to get even with somebody. And I'm telling you what, our world is more like that today than it's ever been. But you know what? We're no longer there. We are now the recipients of grace. In fact, you know what we are? We are trophies of grace. The only thing, difference between a trophy of grace and a trophy that you get for winning the Heisman is that the Heisman trophy sits on somebody's shelf. God's given us feet to walk around to represent the grace of God in the world in which He has placed us. Trophies of grace have feet that walk around demonstrating God's grace to others so they can see the love and grace and mercy of God in their lives as well. We went from being children of wrath. To being trophies of God's grace. Again, we see this picture of repentance, the idea of heading away from God. And now, after salvation, we have done an about face and we are headed in a direction pleasing to the one who has saved us. Verses 8 and 9 show us the road to salvation. Let me take you back to the definition of of repentance that we talked about from Unger's Bible Dictionary. Uh, There was part of it that talked about the relationship between repentance and faith. Although faith alone, Unger says, is the condition for salvation, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, repentance is bound up with faith and inseparable from it, since without some measure of faith, no one can truly repent, and repentance never attains its deepest character, Until the sinner realizes that through saving faith, they have a God who is great in grace and great in mercy. And as a sinner, we've sinned against that God. What's the road? What's the pathway that we're traveling to salvation? By grace, you have been saved. We don't deserve it. You know what grace is, right? We told you what mercy is not getting what i do deserve grace is getting something that i don't deserve it's the other hand of the uh, of the of the two-handed situation or it's the hand in the glove grace and mercy they always go together grace for by grace you have been saved he goes on to say that that grace is through faith this is faith it's not just faith Faith in faith, it's not just faith in some whatever is out there, some force. It doesn't originate in ourselves. This faith comes from God. And you know what you know what brings about that faith in a person's life? We've said it over and over again, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. So then, faith, sorry, Romans 10, 17. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. You don't get saved apart from this book. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The faith that you need to have to be born again comes from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit making that Word of God alive in you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. Those who are truly born again have done nothing to earn their salvation. It is the result of God's plan and Christ's action on the cross of Calvary. It's not by works. And believe it or not, we're going to finish up this morning. Verse 10. The product of our salvation. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus Unto good works, that we should walk in them, which he has prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world. Understand as a result of our salvation that we are his creation. We are his workmanship, the thing that he has made. Paul says that we are God's workmanship, the product of God's, understand this, God's handiwork. You know that I like to do stuff in the, in the garage with wood and stuff like that. I've, to, I've shown some of you that probably the, 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 the crowning piece of my handiwork was the Dr. Seuss bookshelf that I made for Josiah. Shaped like a Dr. Seuss hat and people look at that and say, how did you do that? I said, I'm never doing it again. I cut it out of plywood, I cut a piece out of plywood and then uh, a back piece out of plywood and then I cut out this middle of this so it would look like it looks like the Dr. Seuss's hat and you could put actually stuff in it, not and then I took plywood and I shaped it around the curves of the hat. It was not easy. But it looks good. Somebody I I remember the first time I showed somebody, hey will you make one of those for me? Nope. Nope. Not gonna happen. I did it once, I'm not doing it again. We like to show off our handiwork, don't we? That's why we're trophies of grace. God is busy showing you off to somebody else. Look what I did in that person's life. It took grace. It took mercy. It took love. It's something that nobody else could ever do. God did that in me. And he did it in you. Wow. We are his handiwork. Created by God. And as Paul continues on in the verse, we're going to see what we were created for. We are as workmanship through Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes um, I, can't, I can't always take credit for what I do. Sometimes I find myself in my neighbor's garage. Hey, Dave, how do we do this? How do we make this happen? What's the best thing to use for this? Or I get on the phone and I call my brother. Hey, um, I'm trying to do this what What do I need to do to make this happen The first cornhole board I ever made it's probably the best one I ever made made it at his at my brother's house um it's a it's a Yankee cornhole board it's it's really nice I need to repaint it, but it looks really nice and people look at it you made that yeah yeah I made that this pulpit i I think it looks pretty good. I kind of take credit for it, but I couldn't have done it without my without my nephew uncle timmy bring it up we'll 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 build it i you know there's not a screw in this pulpit. It's not my handiwork. It's really Seth's handiwork. We are God's handiwork in Christ Jesus. I go to visit Seth sometimes, and he shows me stuff. He's Uncle Timmy. I, I, I don't. I don't use screws anymore. It's tongue and groove this, and it's this and that, and it's all kinds of dovetail joints. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing handiwork. People are proud of the work that they do. God is is proud, if we can use that word, and what he's done in our lives to take us from filthy, rotten sinners to saints who love him and serve him and work for him. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. We are born again as the result of what God has done through Jesus Christ. No other way to be saved. We also see that we are crafted to do good works. Sometimes I make a a jig to do something that I'm going to do many, many, many times. And I make that jig for a very specific purpose so that I can make what I'm going to make many of to give away or whatever. But it has a purpose. I have something sitting down in my basement. And Barbara says, do we need to keep this? Yes. Yes, we need to keep that. But why? You're not gonna... Because if I want to make more of those, I don't want to have to make that over again. Okay, so she puts it up in a spot where it's, hopefully we don't forget where it is when we need it the next time. We were crafted by the hand of God, to do good works. This shows us the correct order of the salvation process. We were saved by grace through faith when we repented of our sins and now we do good works. We don't do good works before we were saved to get saved. We do good works after we're saved to show that we are saved. We want others to know that we know Jesus as our Savior, and these good works that we do that God prepared in eternity past for us to do show others that we are the children of God. Why do you do that, they ask. Oh, Because Jesus saved me. Jesus changed my life, and I want you to know about the Jesus that I love and that I know, and that's changed my life, and you now have an opportunity to share the gospel, doing a good work that God created in the eternity past, or ordained in the eternity past, that you should do. And you know what? You're the one who has to do it. I can't do your works. You can't do my works. God created them for you to do. And the works give evidence of our salvation. Our fruit should lead others to repentance, and show them the way of salvation as well. You want to talk about a makeover? There aren't any better makeovers than what God has done in our lives. Taken us from sinners and turned us into saints. From vile to value. Pretty much sums it up. Now, let's quickly review that spiritual journey as we wrap things up this morning. We started out dead in our wicked ways and through repentance, God made us alive in Christ. That about-face that God called in our life. And can I tell you this? When God calls that about-face in your life, it's going to happen. There you go talking about Calvinistic things again. Yep, it's called irresistible grace. God's, if God's got a plan for you to be saved, you are going to be saved. Pastor, how do you know that? Because God is Sovereign. And if God calls somebody to be saved and they don't get saved, then God isn't really God. And everything we believe is, a, is, is, is fake. Yeah, the things we believe are important right down to the little details of it all. God saved us. God called us. God shouted that about face and we responded. We were unable to do anything good because of the sin that we were trapped in, because we were blinded to the lies and the deceit of Satan in our lives. But now we are doing good works because God saved us. No wonder we can use the word miracle when we talk about God saving a sinner from the clutches of Satan. Let me close with some probing thoughts this morning. Obviously, this passage of Scripture was written to believers, right? Paul was writing to the saints in Ephesus. If some of the vile things that describe the children of disobedience sound like the life that you're living today, can I encourage you to take stock of your life and to look and see if you truly are a child of God? Don't operate under an assumption. Don't think, well, I grew up in a Christian home, so I must be a Christian. Is there a time in your life when you remember bowing your heart and your head before Almighty God and asking Him to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from the unrighteousness that was built up in your life? If there hasn't been a time when you've done that, then make today the day that you do that. Make today be the day that you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Those of us who are born again, we need to examine our lives as well. We need to make sure that we are living the life that is characterized by good works. Not to get us saved, but that show that we are saved. That will allow us, enable us to be used by God to do the things in the lives of others, to point them to the their need of salvation and trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior. May our lives be that which God uses to draw others to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross of Calvary. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. and We thank you so much for the makeover that you have done in our lives. Much like the extreme home makeover TV show, the people who... Benefited from the makeover, did nothing to make it happen. Their home was in a a bad situation, didn't meet their needs. Somebody came along and did all kinds of changes and now it fits their needs perfectly. Father, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Without life, can't do anything to fix the problem. And you come along through your Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, chiding us of our ungodliness, revealing to us the pages of Scripture in which we find life everlasting through the work of your Son on the cross of Calvary. And then we start doing good things, not to gain salvation, but to show that we are the children of God. Father, thank you for that change, that transformation that you alone can make in my life and the life of others. And we know, Father, there's still others' lives that need to be transformed just like that. Exposed to the truth of the word of God, confessing Jesus as their Savior, repenting and becoming a child of God. Help us to be tools that you use to make that happen in the lives of others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.